Welcome to Cross the Margin, the podcast. Cross the Margin, the podcast is a proud member of the Osiris Media Group. Check out all their offerings, all their podcasts, live events, everything they got going on at OsirisPod.com. In this episode of Across the Margin, the podcast, I present to you an interview with the author of Harvard's Quixotic Pursuit of a New Science, The Rise and Fall of the Department of Social Relations, Patrick L. Schmidt. In Patrick's book, he tells the little-known story of how some of the most renowned social scientists of the 20th century struggled to elevate their emerging disciplines of cultural anthropology, sociology, and social and clinical psychology, scorned and marginalized in their respective departments in the 1930s for pursuing the controversial theories of Freud and Jung, they persuaded Harvard to establish a new department, promising to create an interdisciplinary science that would surpass in importance of Harvard's big three disciplines of economics, government, and history. Although the Department of Social Relations failed to achieve this audacious goal, it nonetheless attracted an outstanding faculty, produced important scholarly work, and trained many notable graduates. At times, it was a wild ride. Some faculty became notorious for their questionable research. Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert, reborn as Ramdas, gave their psychedelic drug psilocybin to students, while Henry Murray traumatized undergraduate Theodore Krasinski, later known as the Unabomber, in a three-year-long experiment. Central to this story is the obsessive quest of legendary sociologist Talcott Parsons, for a single theory unifying the social sciences, the white whale to his Captain Ahab. All in all, Patrick's lively narrative is an instructive tale of academic infighting, hubris, and scandal. Patrick, I should mention, is an attorney in Washington, D.C. He received a B.A. Magnum Cum Laude from Harvard College, a J.D. from Georgetown University, and an M.I.P.P. from the John Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. He first examined the history of the Department of Social Relations in his undergraduate honors thesis at Harvard, meaning that he has lived with and examined this story for many, many years now. So in this episode, me and Patrick examine why a group of some of the most distinguished social scientists of the 20th century embark upon the controversial yet noble endeavor of birthing the multidisciplinary, innovative Department of Social Relations at Harvard. We discuss the famed thinkers that founded the department, such as Timothy Leary, Ram Dass, Henry Murray, and Talcott Parsons. We explore the exciting rise of the department, its controversial downfall, and ultimately expound upon the legacy and lasting impact of the movement and those a part of it. It's a great interview, really fascinating story here to dig into. Uh, I think you're really going to enjoy this interview with Patrick L. Schmidt. Fantastic. How are you? Uh, very well, thank you. How are you? I'm good, good. I really appreciate you making the time to talk about this. Well, thank, thanks for having me. Of course. Love the book. It was really a fascinating uh, journey 
into Harvard at the time. It was, I, you know, I heard stories about Timothy Leary and stuff that went on with um, Henry and everything, but it was wild to kind of see it all pieced together in such a comprehensive way. Really fascinating. Well, thank you, thank you. Yeah, it was, it's, it was. I mean, the the type, the topic of an academic department sounds a little boring. Yeah. <laughs> when you think of all the stuff that went on Definitely. with this little group, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, and that intersects with so many things in in 20th century history, you know, and uh, that does make it somewhat interesting, I thought, you know? Definitely, definitely. No, I, I, I agree, but I picked it up. I'm like, wow, we're going into a department thing. And then you just see everything revolving around, you know, Vietnam was going on. It was just such a wild time uh, for everything. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot of pieces to it. But you have been, just dig in right away. You've been um, probably pretty captivated about the story for some time, because I know you went, when you were at Harvard, you wrote about it. Uh, for your department, um, you know, the um, undergraduate honors. Is that correct? So Yeah, you know, it was my senior honors thesis. Yeah. Thesis, yeah. So, so you've been captivated uh, by the story for a while then. What uh, what drew you in and, and made you want to, you know, really, really fascinated by the whole thing and then want to tell this story uh, th- as you did? Well, I was very interested in sort of history of science, what, what it was called back then. Now it's it's called a little fancier intellectual history. But I was interested in the history of psychology at Harvard because it, that had grown out of philosophy mm-hmm. under William James, mm-hmm. the famous philosopher who yep. turned yep. psychologist. Mm-hmm. And when I was doing my independent study on that, my junior year, I, of course, learned about the Department of Social Relations that came later. And my one of my professors said, gee, you know, a lot of those professors are still around from social relations, mm-hmm. Henry Murray, yeah. um, Talcott Parsons, the ringleader. Yeah. And he, he said, I think they'd be willing to be interviewed. So wow. you could, you should take advantage of that and get, get them down and, and you could do your, a nice thesis on that. And I said, wow, that that's a great idea. Yeah. So that's what I did. And I interviewed 28 uh, faculty members, administrators Marvel. and wow. others who knew about the department. And then I did a lot of documentary research and was able to, turn that into my thesis yeah fantastic so that's a kind of the crux of the whole story is about this you know renowned group of social scientists who really want to elevate the the disciplines of you know sociology um psychology cultural anthropology um by kind of merging everything together and i I was curious you know i think it'd be fascinating for listeners who might be interested in the book to kind of find out why like to what end did they want to do this? Did they want to bring this, you know, kind of really novel experiment, experiment to life? Well, there were two factors that led to the creation of the department. One was sort of a negative force, if you will, mm-hmm. and the other was a more positive one. And I have to talk about them both. And the negative one yeah, was yeah. that there were really uh, fierce resistance in psychology department at Harvard in the 20s and 30s and 40s to the introduction of psychoanalytic thought, Freudian concepts, Jungian concepts. Back then, the the psychologists were really uh, experimental psychologists. Mm-hmm. Uh, B.F. Skinner's probably the most famous one. He was a graduate student then. And they believed that you, you could only study what you could measure, mm-hmm. what you could observe. Mm-hmm. So they had absolutely no interest in the interior mind. Yeah. Like if somebody had a phobia, if somebody had some... <clears throat> some other uh, irrational fear or problem, um, 
had no interest in that because you couldn't measure it. Mm -hmm. You couldn't observe it. Mm -hmm. So that was off the table. Wow. So Freud came along and there were people like Henry Murray uh, and others at Harvard, not that many, who were very interested in this. And so there was a huge fight in the psychology department and also in the anthropology department mm -hmm. to some extent and even the sociology department. And these psychology professors weren't even speaking to one another. Uh, it, it really caused a headache for Harvard mm -hmm. because graduate students didn't even know what they could do a thesis on, a PhD thesis on. There was no, there was absolutely no agreement on the basic, what was the discipline? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this was a headache for Harvard. Keep that in mind. And then, then we go fast forward to um, these, these, these professors thought there was a way to uh, study man as he functions in society in a holistic way. Mm. So they wanted to bring in sort of everything to look at 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 the study of of man. And they they had kind of an interdisciplinary approach. Mm. And they thought they could combine some of these disciplines. And it was an idea and they'd written a white paper, internal white paper on it. <clears throat> and then World War II happened. Mm. And that changed everything because during World War II, the US government hired over a thousand psychologists, sociologists, and anthropologists to help in the war effort. And they were studying the morale of our enemies. They were studying the morale of our own troops. Um, they were studying, well, how, how can you sell more war bonds? Everything. They were just looking at everything. And it was quite successful. So at the end of World War II, oh, and I should add that when they were all working on these issues, they weren't working in separate silos like they were in the academy. Mm -hmm. They were all working to, side by side. So you had a cultural anthropologist working alongside a sociologist, working alongside a, a social psychologist. And when they got out, when when the war ended, all of a sudden, these behavioral scientists who had been, you know, sort of ignored. They're, they're, they, they were new disciplines, misunderstood disciplines. But now they were, as one of my professors, David Reisman, said, they were now the Cinderella at the ball. <laughs> You know, they were, had proven their worth. Yeah. Yeah. And they were going to make the most of it. Mm -hmm. So they said, well, we, when we got, when they got back in the academy, they said, now's the time to put into practice our interdisciplinary vision. We don't need separate departments. Mm -hmm. um, and they're, they had a lot of credibility now. Yeah. So Harvard thought, okay, well, we can take out the, the social, and the Freudian psychologists out of the psychology department, mm. leave the experimental psychologists there on their own, mm. stop the fighting, and then we'll add the sociologists and the cultural anthropologists and create this new department of social relations. Yeah. So those were sort of how it all came together. So long. Yeah. It's a bit of a long story. No, that's 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 why you know we got a taste of it here because it's really laid out really well, incredibly well in the book. Let's talk a little bit about the founders though, because I mean this, I think these are some names that people you know uh, have heard uh, throughout, you know throughout the years. Timothy Leary, um, uh, Richard Albert, who's Ramdas, who's, who's someone that you know I know a lot of people are really fond of his teachings and uh, kind of the big four that I that I was you know really fascinated by as I went through and Henry Murray. Then of course. Talcott Parsons, where, uh, you know, he was super obsessed. You got, I think you called him the ringleader earlier with the theory of unifying these social sciences. But um, I know it's kind of a loaded question to ask about them at all. But if you could talk a little bit about the founders and, you know, the, the notable uh, uh, names that were bringing this, you know, to life. 
Sure, sure. Yeah. Uh, let's start with the founders. There were really four. Talcott Parsons, Henry mm -hmm. Murray, Gordon Allport, who was the most well-known social psychologist of his time, really was, okay. a personality psychologist, mm -hmm. and um, Clyde Cluckhone, who was a cultural anthropologist. He was the first anthropologist to really start bringing in Freudian uh, concepts to the study of anthropology, which had always been an archaeologically mm -hmm. oriented discipline. St and they, the nickname was sort of Stones and Bones, because that's what they studied. Yeah. It was archaeology. Yeah. He wanted to uh, uh, study the dreams of the Navajo Indians uh -huh. using wow. sort of Freudian concepts. Wow. So, of course, the traditional anthropologists at Harvard thought this was nuts. Insane, they wanted yeah. nothing to do with it. Yeah, yeah. So he was he he was aligned with uh, mm -hmm. Henry Murray and Talcott Parsons and Gordon Allport, um, bringing in the cultural anthropology side. Uh, Henry Murray was the main conduit for bringing in Freudian and Jungian psychology, psychoanalytic thought into the academy. Mm -hmm. He had been analyzed by Jung himself. Yeah, wow, yeah. And just, it, 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 it was a sort of life-changing experience for him. So he was off and running with his psychology clinic, studying sort of abnormal psychology. And the, the experimental psychologist uh, thought this was, uh, thought he was a mystic or a cultist because oh, yeah. it was unscientific. That's I mean, he, he couldn't yeah. measure what he was doing yeah. in the traditional yeah. sense. Mm -hmm. But what, what's funny when they attacked him, he was actually, um, a, 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 uh, he had a PhD in biochemistry. Hmm. He was a hard scientist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he was more science than the other guys who <laughs> attacked him. Yeah. And he was a doctor. He he would wear a, a white jacket to sort of annoy the hell out of the, the <laughs> who were not doctors. So yeah. there, there was that sort of going on. And then there was, a, um, I, I should get to Talcott Parsons, who, as I said, was the ringleader. And he yeah. was he was obsessed with this idea of coming up, coming up with a single theory Mm. to explain uh, and to study and to explain human behavior. He had a degree, a PhD in economics from Heidelberg. Mm -hmm. And he, he, had, he had translated Max Weber's The Protestant Ethic. And he was the main conduit for bringing that into the American Academy. He left economics because he felt it was, it was inadequate to pursue this grand theory he mm -hmm. had. Mm -hmm. So he joined the very small sociology department at Harvard. And he, he he was famous, one of the most famous sociologists of the 20th century because he, and he was a he he thought big. He was not he was not uh, shy at all. And when he died, his fellow Harvard sociologist Daniel Bell uh wrote in the New York Times uh a piece and the headline was simply Talcott Parsons, nobody's theories were bigger. Well, yeah, it was just very I mean, interesting to see how, you know, even with and we're going to get into the downfall and the things that kind of happen and some of the, you know, lingering uh, negative things that that are talked about this thing. His reputation was never really ruined. I mean, you just you mentioned how he was, you know, praised after his death in that way. And, and that was pretty interesting to, to, to read. Yeah, I mean, he he, he failed. I mean, let's. let's yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, he he he, mm -hmm. he, he had this idea. Um he even they he got a lot of money. He and Harvard got a lot of money from the Carnegie 
corporation mm. to flesh out the theory, to yeah. come up with the theory. Because they started the department, one of the fatal flaws is they started the department before they had really had the theory <laughs> they uh, didn't down. First. Yeah. And then a couple of years into it, Parsons realized he had a problem on his hands. He got all this money from the Carnegie Corporation to 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 come to develop this theory and write this write a book. So he took a couple of years off. He recruited others to help him write this book. Um, it was published in 1951. It was called Toward a General Theory of Action. Mm -hmm. And it got a lot of attention because of, of the of the co-authors, you know, Henry Murray, Talcott Parsons, Gordon Allport, Clyde Cluckon. Yeah. So it got a lot of attention, but it, it failed. It, it didn't yeah. work. And sort of in jest at Harvard, when I was there, the people who knew and respected Talcott Parsons would sort of joke that, well, it was so brilliant and abstract that he was the only one that could understand it. <laughs> and that was kind of the, the criticism of his approach to sociology is it was so abstract. Yeah. I mean, he was trying to break it down to a science, mm -hmm. an abstract science, and it was it was difficult. And, and even Daniel Bell and others mm -hmm. who adored him uh, recognized that he had a problem in this regard. But as you said, it it yeah, did his reputation take a hit somewhat? Sure. But yeah. at the end, he was he trained three gener three generations of American sociologists who mm -hmm. went on in their own right to become you know. Uh, uh, Robert Bella, for example, yeah. and others. Um, and so he had a profound impact on mm. sociology, not only in America, but uh, worldwide. And he's still revered. And And uh, I, I have not heard from any of his supporters. I sort of expected them to maybe criticize no. my work because yeah. I was, you know, I was somewhat critical of him. But, it, mm -hmm. you know, but I also acknowledge that he was, uh, he had this amazing reputation and still was, he Definitely. swung for the fences and he missed. Yeah. 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 I mean, I mean, got the idea of a noble endeavor kind of really rang through it. It was a noble endeavor. His ideas were, you know, it, it's it, huge and big, but I mean, yes, he did fail. What, uh, you know, we're all kind of touching on it and we're, we're going that way kind of like the downfall of the department. And there was a, a, a chapter that a lot of it focused on, um, this class, Social Relations 148, and then uh, subsequently 149, I thought that was really, really fascinating, uh, like kind of the drama surrounding it and, you know, kind of how that caused a problem for the Department of Social Relations. So I think it'd be a fun thing to hear you talk about a little bit. I mean, just how the class was put together in many ways was, was really kind of almost comical in a way, you know, with the undergraduate teachers and stuff. And, you know, I'd love to, the instructors, I'd love to hear you talk about that a little bit and what it meant for the overall downfall. Cause I know there's lots of components of that. Yeah. Well, it, it did have an impact on, 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 and, and hastened the downfall of the department in the sense that when this book failed in 1951, the department continued and Harvard, you know, let it continue because it was full of superstars. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it attracted uh, just a lot of big, big, big uh, names in the mm -hmm. social sciences of the 20th century and, and inertia. And so it, the, the department continued, but it, it, it became so cumbersome because it was like, instead of a interdisciplinary department, it was multidisciplinary. So the social psychologists sort of became a mini department. Mm. Sociology became a mini department. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
And so they had all sorts of administrative hassles. They, the, the anthropologists had to attend meetings of their own group. Then they had to attend the meeting of the bigger department. Yeah. And some of them had joint appoint appointments with the anthropology department. So they had to attend those meetings. <laughs> it was a mess administratively, a complete mess. Yeah. And so the department was already a bit shaky. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then we skipped, we skipped one black eye, uh, which I hope we get back to, which was Timothy Leary, which was in 1962. Sure. But yeah. it's like, which weakened the department a little bit. But in 68, there was a group of radical students, SDS, Students for the Democratic Society. Uh, many of them were sympathetic or members of, and they convinced this young uh, professor to be their cover, to ask if, if uh, to create a course mm. called, called a Radical uh, critique of of American capitalism. I, I I don't have the name exactly yep. right, but it was to present a radical perspective on American society, and you know sociology being in the department, the so social relations department kind of looked at this. They looked at the professor. The professor did not tell them that he was fronting mm. for the SDS mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. radical students. Yep. So they looked at this, and you know, in the easy way things used to be done at Harvard. Uh, they said, okay, they signed off on it, right? Yeah. And, and then it was off and running and it was staffed by uh, graduate students from who were members of the SDS, mm -hmm. uh, non-Harvard students, undergraduate Harvard mm -hmm. students, which was the first time that had ever happened. So yeah. you, you had this really loose <clears throat> department and with the stated purpose of proselytizing, of converting students, that's what the SDS yeah. said. Mm -hmm. They wanted to convert students to, uh, from an abstract interest in in sympathy with the left to taking action. Yeah, yep. they wanted that was they wanted to be the bridge yeah. to that action. And I'm not saying that. That's in the words of absolutely of the SDS. Yeah, how controversial the, that would be. That's that that's that's a wild ambition within yeah. in the college. And 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 then the, the the controversy of the department was partly that, but also because the academic standards were, uh, as I say in the book, farcical. Hmm. They 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 had some in some of the sections. It was a huge course. It was yeah. very popular, so it was a huge mm -hmm. course. Yeah, eight hundred or something at one point, right? Yeah, there was like eight hundred students. Yeah, or something. exactly. It started like so a it was a large course at Harvard. Swelling. Yeah, and it was divided into teaching sections mm -hmm. where where. Um, uh, and each section was section leader could come up with their own reading list, mm -hmm. uh, their own approach, and their their standards for grading were um, just laughable. Yeah, I mean, you got one yeah, in one section, you, you got a B automatically if you just showed up, yeah. mm -hmm. and if you asked for it, you could get an A, <laughs> which of course all the Harvard students lined up and asked for it. <laughs> So they had to do no work. Another one, you could do a pen and ink drawing mm -hmm. and, and, and get a grade. Yeah. Um, it, was, it, it was so the Harvard administration and many of the faculty members mm. were just aghast at yes. this. Mm -hmm. But it was already happening. So they couldn't they couldn't really stop it. And there's also Harvard has a long tradition of defending academic freedom. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. OK, the radical 
perspective on American society, they thought, okay, well, that's a respectable sort of idea to explore. It's just that the way they went about it was 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 sort of laughable. Yeah. So they this, but this was a huge controversy. And of course, the backdrop was in in '68 in the spring of 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 '69 was. Um, the unrest on campus. Yeah, general protests against the SDS with the holding people hostage and and the whole thing. Yeah, the, yeah the they, they took over the university hall, the main mm -hmm. building. They kicked out the assistant dean. Yeah, the governor had to call in four hundred national guardsmen yeah. to drag the students out. Yeah, and um, they when they dragged them out, they dragged out this professor mm. who was the the front for the Boy. course, along mm. with twenty of his teaching assistants. Mm -hmm. So it was pretty clear that they were uh, quite involved in this, this yeah. movement. And the, the um, rival radical group, and I don't have the name on the tip of my tongue, but the rival group to the SDS gave the SDS credit oh, wow. for the takeover. Mm. And so I put a lot of weight into that fellow's statement because he had no reason to give credit to yeah. the SDS yeah. for, right. for engineering this takeover. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he said that was the that's what encouraged students to take action. Yeah. And yeah. so uh, so that was a, tur a turbulent spring at Harvard, as it was in Berkeley and yeah. Columbia and, mm -hmm. and, and other places. Uh, so but Harvard had to just grin and bear it because the it was the ongoing course. And um, at the end of the year, when they wanted to start the course the next year, the, the, the department said, well, OK, you can do it, but you can't use any uh, for teaching assistants. You can't use anyone who is not a Harvard student and you can't use anybody who was arrested in the um, the, the takeover of University oh, Hall. Yeah, yeah. And the prof the young professor said, well, that's all my best people. So I'm, I'm, I, you know, I, I'm not gonna do it, you know? So- Handcuffing me here, yeah. Yeah, so that ended, that sort of ended that that yeah. episode. And that was really kind of the last straw in yeah. a lot of ways for the Harvard administration, because they said, look, this department is kind of out of control. I mean, mm -hmm. what's going on over there? You know, this gives us a black eye. University, I mean, you know what what is going on over there, and that's um, and also the faculty was there were there were two camps in the faculty that mirrored the the faculty at large. You had the yeah. conservative caucus, the liberal caucus, mm -hmm. and they really just distrusted each other completely, Absolutely. and they couldn't work together anymore. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, that really on top of the other problems that I talk about in the book, the administrative yeah. problems, the lack of a theoretical foundation. Absolutely. That, that really caused the Harvard administration to say, Hey, we, we, we got to look at ending this, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's like you said, there's so many different pieces to it. And just the whole idea kind of, I, I thought it was just really well put with the marriage of convenience between everyone and just, but it wasn't laid out, you know, no theoretical foundation for uniting its disciplines. I mean, that's a thing, but <laughs> You mentioned it. I don't want to pass it by. You mentioned the black eye um, that was uh, uh, given to the whole you know, department by Timothy Leary. So if you could talk a little bit about Timothy Leary, I know. Yeah, I think he's one of the bigger names that that people who, you know, pick up your book or, or listen to this podcast are going to know. So uh, tell us a little bit about Timothy Leary and what sure. what his sure. um, 
you know, uh, the, the things he put, his project, his uh, <laughs> project did, did, did for the department. Well, he arrived at Harvard in 1959, and he was uh, working at the uh, uh, on personality psychologist uh, psychology. Uh, he was a clinical psychologist, meaning that he he worked with you know people trying to help them directly. It wasn't it wasn't sort of abstract sort of research. And that uh, summer. Uh, and I should say, when he arrived, he also looked very much like a, he even said in his autobiography, he was a caricature of a Harvard professor yeah. with the button-down shirt, yeah. brothers like I have on uh -huh. now, mm -hmm. yeah. a, 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 a jacket with the leather elbow patches, a khaki pants. The only thing, Just he wore cool. tennis shoes okay. Okay. all the time, yep. which was very unusual back in that day. And and as I say in the book, that might have been a tip off <laughs> that he was not going to stay in step. That was the red flag right there. <laughs> toe the line with, with the department. But anyway, so that first um, summer after he started at Harvard, he went down to Mexico. And he tried the magic mushroom mm -hmm. for the first time. Yeah. And he he called it a religious experience. He was convinced that this was the way to help mankind and particularly uh, help psychology in all sorts of ways. Mm -hmm. So when he got back in the fall, he immediately started uh, three different uh, projects. He, he called it the psilocybin project, yeah. although later he, he started calling it the psychedelic project. <laughs> uh, he just dropped the, that. Um, <laughs> and, and, uh, so he, he, he started this um, uh, three different experiments and I say that very loosely. Um, and he was joined in this effort by a professor in the department who had already was already there when he when Leary arrived, mm -hmm. Richard Alpert, yep. who later became known as Ram Das. Yes. And he wrote the famous book, Be Here Now. Mm -hmm. But back then he was Richard Alpert, incredibly wealthy uh, professor, mm -hmm. uh, family money. He had his own airplane. He had cars, oh, he had an incredible yeah. apartment. His father was uh, uh, executive in, in one of the big railroads. Mm -hmm. um, and, and they both hit it off. They were both a little uh, contrarian and oh. they were both bachelors. Uh, they had evening office hours and they were always bumping into one another. And they, they referred to their friendship as uh, Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn, kind of the mischievous uh, duo. Mm -hmm. Although Timothy Leary later changed that to uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sunday Kid <laughs> yeah. to be more like the outlaws, yeah, yeah, yeah. the mischievous uh, mm -hmm. kids. So together they started these these this, these experiments, but they were very it, it's it's charitable to call them experiments because yeah. they were basically giving psilocybin, mm -hmm. which Timothy Leary had obtained the synthetic version of psilocybin mm -hmm. because it was impractical to give mushrooms to people yeah first of all apparently it tastes awful yeah and you know to swallow. So me the measurements are challenging as well right yeah yeah, yeah. and yeah. you don't know exactly how the potency or so yeah he, he had written the sandos the, the drug company who had had synthesized the drug mm -hmm. and he wrote a letter on harvard stationery just saying hey i'm doing some research on this could you send me some psilocybin mm -hmm. And they sent him a huge supply uh, with a little note that said, well, let us know how it goes. I mean, it was very sort of unscientific mm -hmm. exchange. Yeah, of uh, so anyway, so he had this huge supply 
And they were giving, in one experiment, they were giving the, the psilocybin to undergraduates mm -hmm. in, in people's homes in a very relaxed setting um, and then having people just write about their experience. Yeah. So that was it. Yeah. They also did a, a, a experiment in the, at a seminary with seminary students to see if they could induce some sort of religious experience. Wow. Again, there were not a lot of controls or yeah. just people. Like basically. you said, really hard to use the word experiment in, in this situation. Exactly. And then the one, ex the, another experience where Leary was adamant that he had great success was in the Concord prison. Mm. They yeah. were giving it to uh, inmates in the hopes of reducing recidiv recidivism. Yeah. And he claimed some, astonishing number like 80 percent success rate but he it, it's hard to make much out of that because he didn't really keep very good records yeah and, there's some there's some pretty negative stories that come out of that whole experiment with the with the prisoners too yeah yeah so um those was what was going on and it became controversial to harvard be, mm. uh because of the undergraduates using you know they that he and alfred were giving the drug to undergraduates yeah. And there were rumors circulating of these parties of orgies mm. uh, uh, that uh, rumors that Alpert uh, was homosexual and he was using the drugs to to uh, have relationships with undergraduates. Mm. Um, so there were all sorts of, uh, of rumors flying around. The Harvard administration got very concerned um, about the, you know, because they were trying to, they were worried about undergraduates in particular. And there were two incidents with undergraduates who apparently had a very bad experience, mm. uh, went into the hospital, one went to a mental hospital. Um, the records are all sealed. We'll never yeah. really know, yeah. but that's, that's the word uh, at the time. And even the, when I was doing my research, there were professors who remembered this and, th and they were quite angry with Leary for being yeah, they they called irresponsible because sure. he was not a medical doctor and this, yeah. this affects your brain. So, um, there was a lot of criticism for that. Absolutely. And eventually they reached an agreement, Harvard did with Leary and Alpert, that they could no longer give the drug to undergraduates. Mm -hmm. Well, Alpert broke that rule. He gave the drug psilocybin to his friend, an undergraduate named Ronnie Winston, mm -hmm. who was a son of the jeweler, Harry Winston. Uh, some of your listeners might recognize that name, but a very, very famous jeweler to the stars, Harry mm -hmm. Winston. Mm -hmm. uh, so, um, so Harvard had evidence, and, and Alpert admitted that he had done this. So they fired Alpert, which was one of the first times in the 20th century, uh, maybe the first time that that they had actually fired a professor. Yeah. Um, Leary was not fired; he just stopped showing up, mm -hmm. which is which was in line with his famous uh, catchphrase. Turn on, tune in, drop yeah. out. Yeah. He just stopped showing up. An early, early uh, adapter of quiet quitting, right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And and uh, although later Leary would say, "Oh, Harvard fired me," but mm. no, they didn't. They didn't fire him. Uh, he, he just stopped showing up, and they took his name off the payroll. Mm. So that, that was that was it. So Leary, you know, to his credit, he recognized because sixty years later, I should say. Starting this last spring, yeah. Harvard started research on psilocybin again. Yeah, totally. Part of that but was a of its time. Yeah. Yeah. 
yeah, there's, I mean, there's something to the tool, and but it was definitely the way you went about it, and just it at the time, definitely. I, you know, I kept thinking about it too, and I just saw the word undergraduate all, all the time. I just like had to think about how young these people are too. I mean, there's some 17, 18 year old kids, and these are these are some powerful stuff they're given. But to kind of bring us home on on, on two different ways, I want to talk to you about kind of like the impact of the legacy of the department and. uh there's one thing and, and you do, you kind of bring home your book and the conclusion talking about it. And it's a big thing. One thing that lingers, I'll, I guess I'll, I'll talk about it negatively. I'll ask you kind of a negative thing of the legacy. And then I do want to talk about its positive impact because there's definitely things that are there. But I mean, what Henry Murray and his relationship with um, Theodore Kaczynski, the Unabomber, is a big thing here. And it's just something that that was talked about later on. There was that article in the Atlantic you allude to i can't think of um i think it was just harvard in the making of the unabomber wasn't that, something that was like it that? yeah that was it. yeah but i mean i would love to hear a little bit i'm sure our listeners would want to hear a little bit more about you know about this experiment with um you know that uh, henry murray did with theodore uh and kind of you use the word traumatized and what that is and kind of how that's resonating still when people talk about the department because that's this is a, this is a big one you know yeah, and 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 I have to. We have to preface this that this all came out after the department had oh. um, had, had had been uh, terminated. Yep, uh, it came out in the nineties. Mm. Uh, so it wasn't a factor in the dissolution of the department, but it is a factor when historians look back at the department yep. and say, "Hey, kind of what was going on there?" You know, mm-hmm. um, and but Henry Murray, very famous clinical psychologist, as, as we talked about before. During World War II, he had been the chief psychologist for the Office of Strategic Services, the yeah, precursor of the CIA. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. His, one of, his main field of research was how do you break down spies mm-hmm. under interrogation? And also, how do you screen and select our own spies? Who could withstand an interrogation? So he was he he was focused on how do you put somebody in so much stress that they will give up information or how much stress can they withstand? Yeah, that was his field of research, uh-huh. and he was quite successful at it. Um, uh, his work at the OAS and CIA. Uh-huh. Well, then in 1959 he was still doing the same research, but on undergraduates. Kids, yeah, and he would select undergraduates based on. They were either extremely self-confident, mm-hmm. or the other end yeah, of this, they were extremely lacking in in self-confidence. They had, they were shy, introverted, whatever. So he would actually go out and and identify undergraduates that he could bring into this this experiment on on, on in do on a, a stressful situation and breaking people down. He was now focused just on how do you how do you break these students down mm. and the different most effective ways to do that. And he identified this one uh, young student who had gotten into Harvard when he was 16 because mm. he was so brilliant. Mm-hmm. And this student happened to be very, despite being brilliant, had a lot of social, he was socially awkward, shy, um, had a lot of problems adjusting to Harvard. Yeah, I mean, his mother, who signed a waiver, thought this could help him because of exactly, those- and that was that was yeah. Ted Kaczynski. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and Henry Murray, because at that time he had turned seventeen, 
-hmm. So he had to get consent from Kaczynski's mother. So he wrote a letter, but he didn't explain what the experiment was about. He said, this is something so we better understand people and can help mankind, Mm -hmm. something vague and and totally untrue. And she, as you mentioned, she thought, oh, gee, you know, Teddy has such, you know, he has some social problems and maybe these nice, this is a quote, maybe these nice psychologists at Harvard can help him. Wow. Which is really heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah. That's, given that's what happened. I mean, yeah. I'm not I'm not making any excuses for what he did later. Sure. I'm just sure. saying you got a 17 year old kid uh-huh. whose mother is lied to about this yeah. consent. He's already got problems. And then he he's traumatized for three years in this experiment. Mm-hmm. And he says that later he said it was the worst experience of his life. Yeah. Uh, and in his cabin in Montana, he had very few personal uh, uh, items. But one thing he did have was uh, an article or something referencing the experiments yeah. that Henry Murray was doing. Uh, and and when his lawyers asked him in 92 or whenever he was on trial, mm-hmm. they said, well, why did you keep going back? Yeah. If it was so awful, mm-hmm. why did you go back for three years and subject yourself to this? Uh, he said, well, I wanted to show I could take it. Yeah. Um, and, and of course, there were these sensational titles of articles and books, Harvard and the Making of the Unabomber. Mm-hmm. I absolutely do not say Harvard created the Unabomber. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. just saying this was something that, that for a lot of reasons was uh, unfortunate Mm-hmm. had an impact on the way historians view the department. Uh, even Ted Kaczynski's brother, who turned him in, mm-hmm. he's very angry at Harvard, but he, yeah. he never says Harvard, you know, was responsible. Yeah, he never says it after points a finger you know, a little bit. Crimes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He just said Harvard was irresponsible and unethical and um, all, you know, th- those sort of things. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that was um, uh, uh, quite... Uh, 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 a, a sad uh, uh, incident in in uh, Henry Murray's life, and really sort of discredited his um, his legacy. Yeah, his yeah. career, definitely. Yeah. yeah, let's flip the switch though to kind of bring us home. Like I was saying, there has to be you know just uh, with all these uh, uh, deep thinkers we're speaking of, and and their teachings, and you know all the people who you know studied under them. There's there has to be some positive impact to speak of or some legacy from the the department that is um you know uh, uh, something to look at in, in, in a positive life i think you even say that there's certain people who are actually talking about reorganizing academics today in you know along interdisciplinary lines but is there something that we can look at at this department as 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 it impacts uh the world positively to this day at this point yeah, there are there are a few. I would say, and I I put this sort of in the positive category, um, although it might it might not sound that way on, at first blush. Uh-huh. But I think for all these universities who talk a lot about interdisciplinary uh, ventures, mm-hmm. that this should be a cautionary tale. That they should make sure that they really have a solid theoretical foundation for oh, something no, right. that is truly interdisciplinary and not merely multidisciplinary where you're putting people together and you hope by osmosis or something that they come up with something they, yeah. they should be careful with the with the ter- terminology and definitions right mm-hmm. so i think 
as a cautionary tale, it has benefit. There. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I, and I, I think um, the other aspect is it, it did attract an incredible faculty yeah. who were doing great work. Yeah, and I think you drive them all stars. Yeah. Like yeah, and I, yeah. I list them in the, in the book and I talk mm -hmm. about them. Um, besides the founders, you had people that came later um, uh, in, in all sorts of areas. Um, so that that is one aspect. But more importantly, they trained a number of, of PhDs mm -hmm. in the field who went on to do great work. And they incorporated maybe there was no theory that that established an interdisciplinary science mm. but there was an ethos of of okay let's let's think about different approaches that we can bring in and a, a lot of people incorporated this in their own work and there are just a number and i i, I list them in the book but there's there's a, a professor at the harvard graduate school of education howard gardner mm. who uh Definitely credits. He was a graduate of social relations undergraduate and in the graduate. Mm -hmm. And he he really absorbed this this ethos and approach mm -hmm. and applied it in his own work. And there were others that did that. Not that many, not that mm -hmm. many, mm -hmm. but some. So there is some continuing uh, benefit. Now, at some point that will will fade out. Um, but but there is just the just the training of by uh, all-star faculty uh, training of uh, some great graduates who went on to do great work. Yeah. Long list of graduates. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's a very positive effect and it may not be interdisciplinary, yeah. but it was still great, great, you know, scholarly output. Yeah. And, and, and work. Yeah. Well, I got to tell you when I picked it up, I didn't realize all the different stories that would be in it. I didn't realize how captivating, you know, uh, the whole thing would go as, as it went through. It's like this, it is, it's such a fascinating, noble experiment. And it was, you know, it's got the arc of, of, of the rise of it and, and, and the downfall. And it just, it, it's just, it's totally, totally fascinating. So I'm, I'm glad to talk about it, get some more insight about it. And I'm glad to spread the word. It's, I, I think it's like, you know, you hear the names, I hear Ram Dass, you hear Timothy Leary, but like the way you, you piece it all together and I got to get the full story here was really, really great. So thank you for taking the time to talk about it. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. Thank you for those kind words. And uh, I enjoyed it very much. So thank you for having me. The universe is a manifestation of the one.
This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com.